Hello. Welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brand. And this episode, we're discussing SST-162, the self-titled Sister Double Happiness record. It's our first time for having Sister Double Happiness on the show at all. Like, we haven't had them on as part of a comp or anything. We, of course, had the Dicks way back on mm-hmm. episode 17, Brant, uh, with the excellent Kill from the Heart. And episode 17, that's back when we were greener than what? Goose shit. That's right. Um, but this is our first Sister Double Happiness record. I love I love the band. I love this record. And we've got a special guest, Brant. Yeah, Gary Floyd's on the show. Pretty much couldn't ask for a better guest to have on the show. Um, it's great to have him on. Really, in the interview, gets into not just this record, but what came after, but also what came before. Like, how did the dicks kind of morph into Sister Double Happiness? So it's a great interview. Couldn't be happier to have Gary on the show. Yeah. Brant, before we get into some SDH, why don't you hit me with a couple of spiels? Okay. New segment, Ryan. Kind of. It's okay. Called, it's called Three on the Tree. Okay. <laughs> okay. These are three SST-related releases. And I'm going a little deep here. This is stuff okay. I've been trying to track down for a while. I finally got my hands on the John French album, Waiting on the Flame. Ooh. Yeah. So John French, of course, a.k.a. Drumbo, who played on many iconic Captain Beefheart records, but also on SST 110, the Crazy Backwards Alphabet record, and the Scott Colby Slide of Hand, episode 151. Uh, This came out on Demon Records in 1994, which was the label started by Jake Riviera of Stiff Records, Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, and Andrew Lauder. Lots of branches on the tree for this one. It was engineered by Oliver DeSisso, who did SST 141, I think it is, the Henry Kaiser and Fred Frith with enemies like these Who Needs Friends album. Henry Kaiser is all over this record. The mysterious Bob Adams from Name and also CBA um, is on it. And we'll be seeing Bob Adams again on episode 182, the Everett Shock Ghost Boys album. Andy West plays bass on this, also of CBA, who we interviewed for that episode. And Scott D. of Colby plays Slide on seven of the 14 tracks. Nice. It's really great. Of course, all the playing is top-notch. John French is a really good singer. Uh, If you dig the CBA album and some of the other stuff connected to this record that I just mentioned, you'll love it. The next one on the tree, Ryan, Crowbar Salvation. Oh, yeah. I know where you got this. (laughs) This is the band that Peter Andrus was in after Divine Horseman split in the late 80s. Kiss the Brain is the one and only full length on Sympathy for the Record Industry from 89. When we talked about this originally, um, some longtime listeners who know my tastes really well, like Ken Delacruz, were messaging saying, Brant, you need to hear this now. And they totally weren't wrong. Right in my wheelhouse, Stooges-esque scuzz rock. Peter, of course, is a killer player, produced and engineered by Paul DeGree, who also did the Divine Horseman Snake Handler record. And the drummer, Ryan, I don't know if we mentioned this last time, is Herb Sanak, who also drummed on SST-116, Blood on the Saddle, Fresh Blood. The vocalist is Reverend Marty Nation, who, among other things, appeared in the Richard Kern short film Fingered with Lydia Lunch, which, if you've never seen it, is really something. It pops up on YouTube now and again, but it's 
basically full-on porn, so it sometimes doesn't stay up. Okay, but my fave of the three on the tree is a PJD update. Ooh. PJD is, of course, the group of bands and friends that Josh Hayden hipped us to on episode 126, uh, the Treacherous Jaywalkers Sunrise episode, and I've been obsessed with them ever since. James Fenton, the Treacherous drummer, uh, has been chatting with me, and he sent me the out record. So out is James, Josh, and their Pacific Palisades pal, Ed Gregor, who is the singer for SOS, a.k.a. Shower of Smegma. (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't they make it big, I wonder? Yeah. Well, apparently they did. James told me uh, they were a legendary band from Palisades who played at the Cafe de Grande and other punk venues as a band when they were only 13 and 14. They played with bands like Excel and Sin 34. Their record, along with a bunch of demos from Spinhead, actually, is up on Spotify. It's definitely worth a listen. Here's what else James told me. This is Ed, this is about Ed Gregor. Ed formed Alter Drown and Animal. He also played in SWA for a while, Ryan. I think post-Sylvia and pre-Philo. He later formed Hedgehog in Santa Cruz and was later in No Use for a Name. Out played many shows with SWA since Chuck liked us and always gave us endless opportunities to open for SST bands when possible. Like many incestuous PJD bands of the time, we played intensely for a while, recorded the album at Ed's parents' house on his Tascam 8-track, and then stopped playing when we all went off to college. Ed was a shredder guitar player and played a real metal-looking purple Ibanez. I remember when Master of Puppets came out, we went and bought it, came back to his house, and he played along to the whole album. He did that with all albums, whether it was the Dickies, Black Flag, or Angry Samoans. He was insanely talented and a sweet guy everybody loved. We filmed horror movies at his house. He was always a zombie because he could do this weird shit with his eyeballs, making them wiggle and roll back in his head. (laughs) We... (laughs) We also did an amazing and like band together called Smiling Jesus, which I totally want to hear. So this out record is called Once Upon a Time. Hopefully it goes up online at some point. I believe Josh said uh, when we interviewed him that this band was inspired by Gone, and you can totally tell. The playing is great. Ed Gregor is a total shredder. It totally would have fit on SST. It's kind of jazzy riffy instro rock with some sh- you know a little more shred james and josh totally scrunk it up on the rhythm section and on a related note ryan josh put up another treacherous jaywalkers demo on their Bandcamp page just a week ago uh, which was recorded right before sunrise in 86 it's called solar landing and it's pretty critical stuff nice yeah hey brant so since you mentioned that that's three on the tree i'd be remiss if I didn't mention another three on the tree and for fear of the central scrutinizer pointing this out, I just want to mention that there's actually a comp called three on the tree on, uh, on C Z or C Z if you're in the U S records. And, uh, it came out in 1994. It's a cool, you know, grungy indie punk comp with the bands wreck vexed and engine kid three on the tree. Uh, you know I love my singles and my comp singles in particular, so I don't want to be remiss. Okay, I might have to check that out for a future episode of You Know What. The comp zone? Yep. Oh. <laughs> okay, 
little bit of a recommend roundup here for you, Ryan. So a while back I was talking about the only living witness record from 93 called Prone Mortal Form and how deadly it is. And podcast pal Michael T. Fournier sent us a message regarding only living witness. The singer Jonah Jenkins was in a great first wave hydrahead band named Milltown with a couple dudes, Brian McTiernan and Matt Squire, who were in a band called Ashes. Uh, he says, both of these guys were, were and are big producers. The band allegedly broke up in the studio after a fist fight. Jonah was also in Milligram and Raw Radar War, both of whom are heavier than Milltown. Michael says, this is what you get for mentioning Boston bands. So I checked that stuff out. The Milligram, This Is Class War, uh, Tractor 7 Records from 2002, to very cool kind of stoner rock vibe. The vocals are amazing. Not doomy, super rock and kind of like Blues for the Red Sun, Arakaius. And then Milltown, this band for, on the Hydrahead label, had a self-titled EP from 96. That's great. I think you'd really like that, Ryan. It's more melodic 90s post-hardcore, kind of like Cave-In or something like that. Okay. Milltown. I wondered, I wondered if they went to Milltown High, like on the Jealous Again 12-inch. Yeah, and maybe. Influenced by the flag, but maybe not. Okay, and then my third in my recommend roundup is one of yours, Ryan. Sigati? Oh, yeah, Sigati. Yeah. Right. I listened to the record, The Imagination Liberation Front Thinks Again. So their website says, The world's favorite anarcho-blues, lullaby-noise-free jazz avant-circus punk band of joyful rebel revelers. Create yep. mesmerizingly entertaining <laughs> musical political provocation which is a pretty pretty good description, actually. I'm not sure I could describe this band. Yeah, I think I held them out as being Minutemen and Saccharine Trust-esque. Yep, for sure. I think they're Italian. Super, yes, they are. Super creative, pretty wild stuff. And I think the tie-in is p pianist, vocalist, uh, Thala McDonas has the proj hand-to-man band with Watt. That's still on my list of things to check out. Yep, that is the that's the SS tree tie-in for sure. And finally, Ryan, we're going back to back with last week's week's episode here. We're heading back into the comp zone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do it. Okay, 1990 comp on a label called Cocktail. This release uh, called Tantrum. That's the name of the comp. Is one of only of two releases on the. The label. The other is a split single by Ultraviolet Eye and Yard Trauma on the B side. Uh, like most great comps, I now have some new bands to check out and try and learn some stuff about. So the the band Ultraviolet Eye, who I know nothing about, gets gets this comp started. L looks like there's no full length record, just some singles. It's kind of gothy late '80s, almost like Praise era Seven Seconds sound. At least on this track. Maybe that's just the production making me say that, though. The band I Love You has a cool track here that ended up on their Geffen debut a few years later. They're on the tree. This is the band that Phil Newman ended up in post-Painted Willie. I'm not sure if he plays on this song, though. Celebrity Skin has a few tracks on here. A bit wilder than their glamier stuff that they started doing later when they were on Triple X. Not sure if this is the lineup that Pat Smear played in or not. 
Haunted Garage has a wicked song on here called My Disciple. Very Mud Honey-esque. Uh, really cool. L7, who I, who I totally love, has a killer song on here that was on their debut, uh, which came out just a few years prior to this, called Bite the Wax Tadpole. The White Flag song, Zero Hour, is on here. The Instigators, Ryan. Punk band from the UK. And one of the bands on here I've you know, read the name, heard the name Instigators forever, uh, seen their name pop up, but I've never really checked them out. Frightwig, the San Francisco band, has a great punk track on here called 38 Special. Ah, as a tie-in to uh, Sister Double Happiness as well. Totally, yep. Uh, gothy LA band Wreckage has a cool track on here, another band I need to hear more from, almost a Beneath the Shadows era TSOL vibe. Yeah, you got to check out Spider Baby on this comp too, man. Yeah. I've got this comp and uh, Spider Baby's killer. Their two records are good. Yeah, I, I want to check them out. Another LA band I know we've talked about also on the tree, late era flag drummer Anthony Martinez. Pygmy Love Circus. Pygmy Love Circus, yep. One of my faves on here is a band called Christy McCool. Awesome tune called, called Neil's Deal with Meals. Looks like they have a full length on this label called Dr. Dream Records that I've kind of become low-key obsessed with the last couple months. I've been slowly tracking down stuff on that label, so prepare yourself for a Dr. Dream spiel at some point. Yeah, well, we all know what you being low-key obsessed means. It's it's normal person <laughs> ultra-obsessed. <laughs> the Deaf Folk is on here. Gary ja Jacoby and Pat Smear. Pat just belting it out. Uh, Groovy Ghoulies covering Pop Goes the World, that Spider Baby you mentioned. Um, looks like they have a full length and a single, including one on Sympathy. The Rails are on here, don't really know anything about them. Kind of a late 80s indie rock. Tony Gilkison, uh, who was at this point playing in X, has a great rootsy rocker on here. And it closes with a band called Artistic Decline. Yes. Um, yeah, that's a couple dudes that ended up in that band, Ultraviolet Eye. Jeff Chereau and Mark Orenberger. They've also got a full length called Random Violence where Ray Pettibone does the artwork. Yeah, but I'm guessing you have that since you're a Pettibone completist. I'm going to hypothesize, Ryan, that they were behind this release, maybe. Just because, uh, you know, Ultraviolet Eye is on it as well as Artistic Decline. Those are my spiels, Ryan. What do you have? Cool. That's awesome you have that comp. It's a good one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good one, too. I, I agree. Um, I will admit, though, I have not went down the trail of following every artist on that uh, comp. So you have uh, set the bar yet again, and I have to re-listen and re-dive <laughs> into that comp. Uh, well, hey, my spiels, I've got kind of two recommends on either side of a new alliance weird and cool deep dive that i did so my first spiel is a recommend because i'm obsessed again with a band called rockets red glare hmm. and it's a solid recommend for you it's a canadian band i i get obsessed with them like twice a year i think i don't think i've ever recommended them to you though so you got to check them out they're kind of math rock post rock from toronto they're self-titled from 2002 on Stick Room Records is the one that I always get obsessed with, but they also have a full length called Moonlight Desires from 2003 on Blue Skies Turn Black Records. 
but again, you gotta you gotta check out their self-titled record. Two of the members were in a band called Blake, which is more of like an emo tinged math rock, which I don't like as much. But you should also check out their subsequent band called Etoin Shridlu. That is E T A O I N S H R D L U. And uh, their record is called Mating Calls from 2009 on Standard Form Records. Also really good. Mathy, post, rock. Uh, I love it. What got me into it again, actually, was those Discord offshoots we talked about on the last episode. And these guys would have fit in, I think, with uh, some of that later era Discord crowd for sure. Uh, I just love them. Um, but check out A2N Shridlu. And but first of all, check out their uh, 2002 self-titled album, Rockets Red Glare. You're going to love it. Okay. Um, now, again, before I get to my next recommend, I did a weird and cool New Alliance Records rabbit hole deep dive. And I'm wondering if you've heard of of these ones. And again, the reason I started checking out this because I, I saw a post about um what's that dude's name who did like the basketball record on issues records what do you remember what his name was uh shit oh he's super famous coach yeah um, yeah i can't remember what his name is but i i should have written it down because i was down having a brain fart but yeah someone will point it out and please do but um anyways i went down a new alliance records weird strange and weird deep dive and new alliance of course was a label founded by minutemen mike watt d boone they put out the early records by minutemen descendants who's could do also comps like cracks in the sidewalk and chunks eventually sold their record label to sst sst re-released much of its catalog um and it, it has great hidden gems on it like the solomon grundy or gobblehoof records um but then it started putting out really weird stuff and that's what i was checking out is it Bill Walton? Yeah, man. It's Bill Walton. You got it. It was put out on Issues Records in 93. That's the one. So I saw a post on that, and I was like, I got to check out some weird and strange stuff on New Alliance as well. The first thing I checked out, though, is this one. Scott Richardson, Torn Tornado Souvenirs from 1992. New Alliance Records number 64. This is weird and strange. It's got Ron Ashton on it. Yeah, it has Ron Ashton and Ray Manzarek from The yep. Doors on it. Scott was the lead vocalist for the band Scott Richard Case, or SRC, which was a U.S. psychedelic rock band from Birmingham, Michigan, in the late 60s and 70s. They released three records on Capitol Records from 68 to 70. The liner notes on this release are, of course, by Harvey Kubernick. Scott and Ron Ashton played in a band together called The Chosen Few. That predates the Stooges from 65 to 67. In the late 80s, Richardson ended up in Venice, California, where he became a screenwriter and a novelist and befriended Manzarek. It also includes uh, Robert Mitchum and Jane Greer, who are actors on this record. They recite words on this record. So it's this weird spoken word record where Ron Ashton and Ray Manzarek lend some musical accompaniment um, they and in Scott and Manzarek also put out a second record in 1994 on Wildcat Recordings uh, called Revelation Blues. This is a weird record, man, on New Alliance. Whoa. 
I started buying, after we talked to Abe Gibson way back when, I started buying a shit ton of that spoken word stuff. I've probably got about 20 of those New Alliance poetry records. Whoa. They're really it, good. It's weird. Some of them. Do you have this one by Dr. Noah Young? I do not have that one. This this is actually more weird than the Scott Richardson one. It's called Freaks, No Fear of Contagion. This is 1994, New Alliance Records, 117. It's jazz, bass, and spoken word. And this is what Harvey Kubernick obviously did the liner notes again for this one. Uh, and this is what it is described as on the back of the CD jacket. An original spoken word with jazz interludes presentation representing the culmination of 25 years of experience as a teacher slash healer and psychotherapist and 30 years as a jazz bassist. Wow. It is way out there. Dr. Noah Young, he played with a bunch of obscure jazz players, but at least not the really well-known ones. Um, like he also played with Carla Carla Blay, which is, she's kind of well-known, but not like a Miles Davis or something like that. He was also part of a trio that accompanied Tom Waits on a concert tour of the U.S. and Japan. He appeared in the movie Raging Bull. His debut album, Unicorn Dream from 1975, on Laughing Angel Records was on many top 10 jazz lists of that year. He became a licensed psychotherapist and a lecturer, uh, in particular on addiction and family and child therapy. He was, a, as I said, like a lecturer, a spoken word poet, and also had a jazz trio called The Erotic Zone. Um, he later became, I, I don't think... It's, it's hard to find info on him that is act, like current and accurate, I guess. Um, it appears as though there is a the best place is a Facebook page called Remembering Noah Young. It looks like he later became a Buddhist and got like a ton of face tattoos. And it is just weird and cool. New Alliance. And I was blown away with these two records. Um yeah. And if you want to get blown away, check them out yourself. Yeah, there's some great stuff to be found on there, Ryan. I don't have this one, but this is something you might want to try and track down. I think it might even be a two-disc compilation, but there's one all about baseball. Like oh, yeah. Jazz poetry about baseball. Yeah, I have not been able to track it down, but I know it's out there. It's on my want. There's some wild stuff that they put out with like pretty crazy connections. Like there's some actors there's like the danny weitzman one shredder yeah. it's called the wet dog shakes that's the one you need to hear the these are like the scott and noah records that i got or cds they're just like the cheap ones i could find and have show up in my mailbox during the plague really easy i haven't done the, the like the real in-depth search for everything else but wow man so yeah. weird so cool yeah. um okay and then finally Another quick recommend for you. I completely missed this one in 2020. Had I known about it, it would have been on my honorable mentions. The band is called Waylon Storms. The record is called Rattle. Brant, you have to check out the Waylon Storms, the record Rattle. They've put out a number of records. This is their latest one on Antenna Krizku. It's Doom. Like, and I'm picking up on St. Vitus here, okay? This is why I'm I'm kind of recommending it. Doom, goth, post-punk, post-hardcore, Danzig-esque vocals. From North Carolina, 
Um, I've got some of their prior releases. I had no idea that this one came out last year. I finally got it. It's awesome. That's a solid recommend for you. I actually did listen to that one. It's on Spotify. It didn't grab me. Um, do, do it again. You're, the way you're describing it right now is making me think that maybe I just wasn't in the mood for it or do something. Do it again. You got to check it out. Especially the Danzig ass vocals. I was like, whoa, wait a second. Remember uh, Danzig Gate from two years ago on the show? <laughs> Where you uh, surprised me by letting me know that you like, you know, 777 era Danzig or, or Circle of Snakes. Yeah. There's yeah. some later era Danzig that's good. And don't forget, we agreed that that is one of the few artists where pinched harmonics are good. All right, man. Well, that's uh, we've got lots of work to do after those spiels. I love it. Can't wait. Gary Gary Floyd kind of reminds me of Danzig a little bit sometimes. Yeah, there's a lot of soul there for sure in both of those dudes. Yeah. Let's yeah. get into it, man. History lesson, part one. All right, like I said, it's our first Sister Double Happiness release, but we, of course, had the Mighty Dicks on the show at SST... 17 the kill from the heart record awesome band we love the dicks um and of course i was also this week getting back into the dicks and the big boys you know it's it's <laughs> yeah too. it's hard not to listen to both of them at the same time and i just love them both i listened to the big boys yesterday yeah <laughs> yeah just love that stuff right um yeah so go back and check out episode 17. Uh, even though we were greener than goose shit, we do the uh, history lesson on the dicks. And uh, really what we are doing is we're picking up from the dicks when they disbanded in 86. The dicks, of course, formed in Austin, Texas in 1980. The lineup changed in 83 when they moved to San Francisco. And at that point, it was Gary Floyd on vocals, Tim Carroll on guitar, Sebastian Fuchs, on bass and vocals, and Lynn Perko on drums. Uh, they released Kill from the Heart uh, on SST in 83, and then also the amazing record These People in 85 on Alternative Tentacles. And Kill from the Heart, of course, was re-released later on on Alternative Tentacles, thankfully. It's not one of those SST releases that you can't get anymore, like The Stains or Subhumans. You can get Kill from the Heart, thank goodness. The Dicks disbanded in 86, and Gary and Lynn uh, went on to form Sister Double Happiness. Instead of crossing over into metal, they kind of crossed over into roots music, almost. Um, Gary, when you read in his excellent book, Please Be Nice, My Life Up Till Now, um, that's on left of the dial press from 2014. When you read Gary's description of when the band, the Dicks, disbanded in 86, it sounded like he was happy to be out of a band and he he's uh, remarks that he was breathing a bit free, you know, didn't have that responsibility or obligation, I guess, is how it felt for a bit there. But shortly thereafter, Gary and Lynn were looking for a bass player and a guitarist. They went on to form Sister Double Happiness, um, but they wanted to form a band with no particular kind of music or they wanted to play any kind of music leave all genres behind, as Gary describes it. While uh, Gary was starting to work at a shelter for runaways, he and Lynn, Lynn, of course, was the drummer, Gary the vocalist, they needed a bass player guitarist. One night, Lynn called up Gary to let him know that Ginger Coyote, singer for the White Trash debutantes, 
and Gary mentions Ginger in the interview, uh, Ginger let Lynn know about a guitarist, Ben Cohen, who was looking for a gig. Ben played in the band Pokeside, but also in Popo Pies, which is a great San Francisco band that Gary mentions in the interview. They got together, they jammed, and it worked out. Um, Gary in particular, really, he mentions in his book how he liked Ben's style. Gary describes it as melding pounding rock and roll with lurking ragged blues, which Gary loved. Gary initially wanted to call the band Brown Beach, as he mentions in the interview, but Lynn and Ben did not approve of that. Gary also describes how he got the name Sister Double Happiness from a book that he obtained at this venue that the Dicks played in Houston used to be a revolutionary communist party bookstore. Sister Double Happiness was a, a character in this cartoon book. Then Gary heard that his old pal Mikey Donaldson from Austin was in town. He is a bass player from the band The Offenders. Mikey also played in DRI and MDC, Brent. I don't know. Um, you're probably more of a DRI guy. I couldn't find exactly what Mikey played on with respect to DRI. Uh, do you know what that is? I don't. I, I don't. I'm a DRI fan, but I, I don't know the history well enough to know. I, possibly nothing. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. He may. He may you have know. been like in between albums or something. Uh, yeah. But anyways, Mikey moved to San Francisco, and Gary recalled that he was a great bass player and and sought him out. He found him and basically offered him the gig. Mikey accepted. He was happy to play something other than hardcore too. Uh, by the time of their first gig. They had basically written almost all the tracks for this self-titled record. And the band really took off. They had big, appreciative crowds. Um, and somehow they got hooked up with SST. Like Gary describes providing the tape and getting hooked up. They recorded and mixed this album in 48 hours with an engineer that D Gary describes who was used to working with Joe Satriani rather than a band like this. They basically went in on a Friday and were done on a Monday. Um, but if you read in this book, Left of the Dial, Conversations with Punk Icons by David Ensminger, there's an interview with Gary in there. And the way Gary describes it is um, he started to pursue, as you guys discuss in the interview, his spiritual interests. And he got... He got into Buddhism and Hinduism, but there was a, an offshoot of Hinduism that he really found attractive. The mother worship of Kali and Vedanta philosophy. And this was something that Gary describes he had to do, but only to the maximum. Just And so he basically quit Sister Double Happiness. The band wasn't very happy because they had just released this album on SST, but Gary was really pulled toward the spiritual path and basically it didn't end up working out or it didn't end up being a long-term type of path, but he, he still spent, you know, one full year outside of the band pursuing the spiritual path. And he decided, you know what, I got to get back into music. Um, Gary called up Lynn, Lynn came and picked him up at this temple and he said, let's get the band back together. And basically Lynn, Mikey and Ben, they all said, yeah, we, we're happy to get the band back together, but it needs to be permanent. So they got the band back together and uh, they, they took off. And shortly after that, actually, they got picked up by Warner and uh, were signed to a major label. They put out the album Heart and Mind in 91. 
then moved over to Sub Pop in 93 and did the Uncut album, and in 94, the Horsey Water album. Sister Double Happiness basically disbanded not too long after that. Um, there is a live acoustic record that was released in 1999, recorded in 1992. A bunch of singles on Sub Pop as well. And then Gary went on to uh, release a ton of solo records. Some are uh, really kind of hard blues sounding records with the Gary Floyd band. There's a ton of great records there. Sister Double Happiness, though, you should check out there on uh, the great Rokey Erickson tribute comp where the pyramid meets the eye. They do the song Two-Headed Dog, great version there. SDH also did the song Holiday in Cambodia on the Dead Kennedys tribute, Virus 100. I forgot about that. Yeah, great track there. Uh, speaking of tribute comps, Gary also is on the James Williamson album, Relicked. He does the track Cock in My Pocket. Great version with Gary on vocals. It is a great album. I forgot about that, too. Yeah. But that's a really good one. You know who else is great on that record is Lisa from uh, The Bell Rays. Uh, man, mm -hmm. oh, man. Yep. Uh, Lisa and James Williamson. That's a great combo. No surprise there, of course. Yep. Um, and then you mentioned also in the interview... I know one of yours and my favorite records that Gary was ever on is the great Black Kalima record. You Ride the Pony, I'll Be the Bunny on Alternative Tentacles in 2000. Um, I was listening to that record again this week, and man, oh man, like Gary's Gary's vocals are just top-notch, right? Uh, on, I love that record. That's probably my favorite thing he's ever done. Yeah, it's so good. Um, I have checked out a few of his solo albums, uh, World of Trouble, the, the Broken Angels record, that's the Gary Floyd band. He also um, lends his vocals to this band Mushroom brand. Have you ever mm -hmm. checked out those? I spieled about it one time on the show. Yeah, like it Wait, seemed yep. it seemed familiar to me, um, but I honestly did not check it out until this week. He's on the Compared to What album from 2000, and also the Mad Dogs and San Franciscans from 2003. Those are worth checking out if you want to hear some Gary Floyd and like basically guesting with a psych band. It's wild. Yeah, we've talked about that one before. Or I have for sure. It would have been you. Yeah. What about some of these other bands? Like, have you heard Breakouts? No, no, I have, I've got to check that out. I just heard about it for the first time in the interview. Yeah, so that's not anybody that's on this record. That's um... that's later era, Sister Double Happiness. Yeah, that's the Danny Roman band they have this record called jacked up urban modified that's really good they have some singles too but if you like he played on well he played on i think he's joined the band for uncut the last two uncut and horse water Dump. probably yeah 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 and played i think with gary on most of his solo stuff for sure on black kelly ma he's a really good riff writer and you can hear that in this this breakouts record yeah yeah well uh, i mean one other spiel I'll just lay on uh, on you before we get into the interview that I really liked that uh, it's actually a spiel of Gary's about getting into the blues and roots music. And it's from this left of the dial book, Conversations with Punk Icons. The, uh, the interviewer, David, he asks Gary, how did you begin to meld blues into punk? Why did that seem like such a natural thing? Is punk like the blues? a form of great American music. And this is what Gary said. I love this. 
The last part of your question I tend to shy away from because I'm not some big scholar on that. And I actually think that nobody is. I think punk rock is music and people got into doing it in England, Belgium, and then they did it in America. So it's an international expression of music. It happens to be a common thing among some people. I always like the blues. It's always been one of my favorite kinds of music. With the Gary Floyd band, I actually did hard blues albums. And with the early Dicks, my voice just seemed to project that, especially on songs like Shit On Me and Shithole, which had a little bit of a bluesy feel. When people expressed that, my bluesy quality, after the fact, I was shocked. So it's interesting that Gary, like, it came natural to him. He was a fan, but he didn't really, it wasn't intentional. And it was only kind of after the fact that people said, dude, you've got like some, a blues tinge to your voice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is like, when I think of punk blues, I think of, you know, the gun club or something. That That's not what this is. This is more just like blues rock almost. Roots music, for sure, for me. Yeah. In more of a 60s or a 70s style. Yep. Almost, though, like through a Stones filter or I don't know, like a... More of a Chicago blues, maybe. This The sound on this record, for me, it's coming up in the late 80s, right? Right around the time that a lot of, you know, grunge bands are starting to take off. And there's some serious sounds on this record that sound very grunge-esque to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yep. Green River or something like, yeah. Well, Mud Honey, for sure, has some blues. Yep. A, a blues influence. Hey... What about some of these other bands like Lynn Perko? Do you do you know Imperial Teens? At yeah, all? well, I was going to mention that because um, maybe in History Lesson 2, because in the thank yous on the album, they thank Roddy Bottom from Faith, ah. Faith No More, who has Lynn Perko in the band on drums as well. Ah, okay. She was also in Frightwig, which you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. What about her band, The Rex? Though. That predates the dicks? Yeah, no, that yeah. was uh, news to me. Interesting to check out for sure. Yeah, I kind of, it seems like all they had was a demo, but maybe they're on like a killed by death comp or something like that. I wouldn't be surprised. We should also mention Ryan, the bass player on this record, Mikey Donaldson. He passed away in 2007 at the age of 46. Gary in his book kind of talks about uh, the decision to kick Mikey out of the band. Uh, due to addictions issues yep. so um, hard decision yeah yeah well i mean that's uh that leads us up to this record do you want to toss it over to gary sure all right we're joined on the podcast today by gary floyd gary thanks for being on the show glad to be here glad all right so we're talking about sister double happiness but i'm wondering if you can take me back gary to your move to san francisco you talk in your book about being picked up at the airport by MDC members and going straight to the VATS to audition new members for the Dicks. What was that like? Well, it was such an odd experience because I had been with the uh, original band members and good friends for, you know, a good while. And uh, we went on some big tour and when we swing, we were living out here in San Francisco. And then we went on a big three-month Rock Against Reagan tour. And when we came back, we stopped in Texas for a week or so. And 
then the other guys, they uh, told me they didn't want to come back out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were happy in Texas, and and I did want to come back out here, so I did. And I, you know, like I told them that it, it didn't create the best of feelings, but but we survived it. And actually, Dave in DC sort of uh, told people that I was going to be coming back and looking for members to uh, join the band. And it was in an old Ham's brewery that had been basically fixed up a bit by uh, the day, uh, day of NDC people had sort of reconstructed this. It was huge. I mean, there were many, many bands there. Some of it, it could be very seedy or sort of, I mean, an old abandoned brewery. <laughs> I mean, the idea of it being seedy can't be too far-fetched. Right. So there was uh, maybe 20 or so people waiting for me that night. We went from the airport and went right there. And Debbie Gordon, who was a manager at that time, me and uh, her and Dave showed up at the Vats, and there were all these people, and I was a bit shocked and uh, overwhelmed by it. It was overwhelming a little bit, but all these people actually played pretty good, and they were playing the songs, and uh, it, was, it was something, uh, even out of a bit of a drunken haze, I remember. And, um, yeah, they were lined up, and they'd come in, and... <laughs> There were quite a few uh, guys who wanted to play drums, but that's when I met Lynn Perko, who had been in a band from Reno called The Rex. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was happy to uh, that I think she was the only woman that came and wanted to be in the band, and she was a great drummer. So she was the first person I picked. And then I got, you know, a couple of other guys. It was overwhelming a bit, but. Uh, Oddly enough, it was pulled together, and uh, that was that was how that worked. Tell me about that band, The Rex. Did you ever see them play? They were from Reno. No, right? I didn't ever see them. They were uh, three women. Well, I'm, Lynn was a drummer. A woman named Helen Party was the uh, singer. Joan Stebbins played bass, and... Uh, a woman named Bessie was uh, who I did not know very well, but the others I knew extremely well. And they were just this sort of scrappy play. I mean, I Lynn's first drum set was a couple of different garbage cans. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but they were all young and they were all really like sort of young, cute punk girls from Reno and they would sneak off and go to LA and San Francisco and stuff. And, uh, you know, when the bands would come to Reno, the Rex would usually play with them. And, uh, <laughs> I think they had one big hit quote punk song, uh, punk is an attitude. Uh-huh. And they were, uh, I, I, I thought that was very cool because they, uh, they were disassociating the look from, from the feeling, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I thought that was sort of cool. 
they they were wild. But by the time I met them, they weren't together anymore. They had already sort of taken the hiatus from their music world. And, but Lynn uh, wanted to keep playing, so she did. Now, in the book, I have to ask, because I'm Canadian, you single out DOA, and you also toured with them with this version of the Dicks. Oh, yes, yes, they were... Uh, DOA, uh, uh, somehow, they they came here a lot to uh, California. I got to know them, you know, fairly well, just by... And then we did. We went on... Uh, it was the, as I read, the SF Dicks, which was the... Dick said, I reformed. Right. They asked us to tour them, and we were on tour. Then. You know, I don't have any idea how long we were on tour. Then. It may have been a month, or it may have been two weeks. I don't know. But we toured, like, quite a bit of the Midwest and the, uh, or the, and the East Coast. <laughs> they, were, they were a trip, you know. <laughs> I remember uh, they had a house in Vancouver, it probably had some name, but I always called it the DOA house. Right. And we went there a couple of times, and we would stay in this. It was a really big house that a lot that some of them lived in, or all of them. I, I, I don't know, but uh, it was during the time that their drummer uh, was uh, dimwit. Right. And uh, he was quite a character. He was uh, he intimidated me very much uh, because he never broke character. <laughs> That I do. And I thought, oh, man, this guy's going to beat the hell out of me. So I was just out of the van reading or something, and everybody else was in the house. And all at once, a bam, big bam came on the door. And I went, yeah. And the door blew, and it was a dim one. He went, here. And he threw something in the van and shut the door, and it was a T-shirt with his face on it. That just said dimwit, and I thought, eh, this will be okay. This will be, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we never really talked a lot after that, except I didn't think he was gonna, you know, kill me or anything, right? But, uh, no, those were great guys. They were the most, they, they opened me up to the idea that Canadians could be a lot like Texans, they were very real one down to earth and I got to know them pretty great and they were always we all joked around and got along really well and uh yeah I haven't seen them for a long time now some of the people that I knew have a good god most of them have passed away yeah but uh it was a great time it was it was uh being in Atlantic City with DOA that can uh that can blow your mind a little bit <laughs> You talk in the book about the end of the Dicks, the San Francisco version, and wanting to move on from the punk scene. I guess my question is, like, was was the direction Sister Double Happiness went in more of a blues-based direction? That was a, a conscious decision you and Lynn made together? Well, you know, the thing about it was, well, I didn't want to be trapped into anything. And it was coming to sort of a... Uh, a point that during that time, the the, the skinhead thing in San, San Francisco was sort of getting a little bit out of hand. And uh, they were, you know, those guys would show up at all the shows. And the whole idea of a pit was getting so real wild and people would get knocked out. <laughs> It'd be like, 
you know, that was okay every once in a while, but it didn't sort of, it wasn't, oh, and I was writing music and starting to play music that people were, uh, they were yelling faster. Or, and I thought, you know, fuck that. I, I don't want to do faster. I want to do faster if I want to do, but I don't want to always do that. So I started feeling like it was coming a bit of a, like a yoke. And although I think maybe the whole idea of moving out of the punk scene wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, but what I did want to do was expand my consciousness of what I thought a punk scene was. And I wanted it to be just the sides like a mohawk and uh, really fast music. I wanted it to be like, like honesty within how you created the stuff, you know, like, so my whole approach to music did change in the idea that I didn't feel confined to just doing really fast or anything. I mean, and I think a lot of other people were doing the same thing, but part of my decision to do that was a conscious thing because I didn't want to play where women would feel like if they got into a dance seen somebody would you know hit him in the head with a boot right or something I, I i wanted to just expand the whole thing for myself you know uh so insisted on what happened his first standard it was me Lynn, and ben cohen the guitar player i mean he had been in some different bands too so we just all said you know if we want to play really fast and we should feel free to do it, but we should also feel free to use the roots of our education in the music world, which was blues or things like that, and not feel um, that we couldn't do it. So part of it was, I mean, like something we had really thought about, and part of it was just like, okay, we thought about this enough. Let's just make a... Uh, music and not worry about what somebody else might want to title it. Okay. You know, it's not like I really denounced the punk scene. I mean, I always loved it. Right. But at a distance sometimes. Okay. You mentioned Ben Cohen. Tell me about those bands. Popo Pies and Pocaside. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Popo Pies. Well, there was a guy named Joe uh, Joe Pie, I think is what he went by, and he um, he would gather different people to play with them, Ben being one of them, and uh, sometimes they would go on the most, really a rough crowd, and play like 30-minute set of only doing, uh, like, trucking by Grateful Dead. <laughs> and uh <laughs> I mean, of course, the audience would become infuriated and loud and put down. But then they made sort of a reputation of doing that. So, uh, and then, uh, so that was one of the, they had a lot of songs, but they tended to do that quite often. <laughs> just play one song. I, and uh, I, I'm starting to understand why the Melvins always reference the Popo Pies. It seems <laughs> the, the uh, yeah, antagonistic. They were like, part. Uh, <laughs> They became rather cultish, and, uh, and I, I mean, I don't know whatever happened to them. They just seemed to disintegrate, and 
poker side was just what you think. And those guys, they were like usually different musicians from different bands that they would get together and play a big polka set. Uh, sometimes a whole lot faster than the uh, general idea of polka music. But uh, yeah, they played polka music. So Ben came from a rather odd background. Right. But uh, he was also uh, looking, you know, for an outlet. And uh, Sister Double became that. We tried out musicians, uh, bass player for like a, seriously, like almost a year. Oh. And we also wanted like a second guitar player, but, you know, we were just saying, okay, well, it would be best if we went ahead and got a bass player. So most of those songs that were especially on the first album, the SST album, were um, written even before we had a bass player. But then my buddy from uh, The Offenders, a really hard, great band from Texas, Mikey uh, Donaldson, he moved from Austin to San Francisco and he was immediately an sister and that's how we we started. Mm. Now you say the writing. So would this have been were you, Lynn and Ben in a practice space together or or are you and Ben yeah. just in a living room yeah. writing well, these know, songs? Actually there was a, a friend of ours named Ginger Coyote who was a big personality around uh, the city. And she heard we were starting a new band and uh, she was friends with Ben. And so somehow we connected with him. I, I had never met him before. But uh, yeah, we said, well, let's just get together. And yeah, we rented a space and we started practicing a couple of three times a week. Yeah, that's just how we met. I mean, and like I said, I don't think Lynn had ever met him. But, you know, we became, we were happy to meet each other because we all wanted the same thing. Uh, now, is Debbie involved, Debbie Gordon, at this point, or is she, has she moved Well, on? she had been the manager. When I had moved to San Francisco, when the Dixon originally, in October of 82, moved out here to the West Coast, we, we met Debbie. And uh, just through friends. And uh, she worked at the uh, stock exchange, but <laughs> she was a pretty hard, hard, hard living gal. And uh, she and I became really good friends. And so she went with me one time to book a show at some epic at a club here. She just was tagging along with me. And the guy at the club went, oh, okay, we'll, we'll pay you like 50 bucks and give you give you a couple of beers. And Debbie, just being naturally pushy, said to the guy, no, 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 this guy, you know, you have to pay him more. And she ended up on negotiating that we got paid more and we got a case of beer. And I was so mystified and what a wonderful manager she could be. Right. Then I said to her, you know what? You've got to be the manager. And it was like, okay. And uh, that's how that happened. But she ended up being the manager for the original. And then when we reformed, as I said, uh, 
SF Dicks, well, she became the manager. And then later on, she was, uh, she worked, she had gotten a job for Warner Brothers. Mm. And uh, when we, when Sister started getting serious and saying, well, we really want to do this, and then, you know, keep making records, she quit working at Warner Brothers and uh, started managing us full time. Uh. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a curse and a blessing. Right. You know, it was, uh, it was a great thing, and it was like, uh, maybe it wasn't so great. But that's what happened. Right. Now, after forming Sister Double Happiness around 86, you you play some shows, and then you make the personal decision to leave the band and pursue your spirituality. Talk about that decision. Well, yeah, well, you know, my uh, the early times in the band, in the day, we were very political, and uh, but we were also like sort of fun. So you know, like a lot of the political bands I met were all very mock based, real uh, serious, and uh, we weren't like that. We were we were very serious, but we weren't like mock based. And uh, but I was uh, always had a big interest in the spiritual life. And uh, the Hindu and the Buddhism thing were the route that I found my spiritual say going in. And uh, so just as some sisters started like being booked a lot more and were playing a lot more, I, I, I was really finding it uh, impossible to ignore the spiritual and so I'm a bit of an extremist, so I decided, well, the thing I want to do is I want to uh, join a monastery. <laughs> I don't want to do any music anymore. If I do, I don't want it to be this. And yeah, so the band wasn't really happy about it, but I told them, you know, I got to go. Like, I got to do this. And I did, you know, so we, but after like pursuing that route and like I never was really like I spent five or six days a week at the uh, monastery and the uh, temple here that I was involved with. And uh, but the head of the monastery and the head of the temple here told me that he wanted me to keep my own house and all that kind of stuff in case it didn't actually happen. So after a year, I pursued. I, I was thinking, well, you know. I've studied this. It's really great, but I don't think I want to do the whole, uh, like, I don't want to just quit everything. You know, this isn't going to be what I want to do for forever. And it would be a commitment that I would want to do forever if I really wanted to take it serious. So I'd studied for a year, but then I decided, well, I think I want to get back into music. And I, I told, uh, Islami, who was the head of the center, the Vedanta Center, and he went, yes, yes, this is what you should be doing. He said, you know, you you studied this and you don't have to leave, but but you should pursue the music because that's what your uh, that's what your real calling is. And I was all happy to hear that, and I called Lynn, and within like a week, <laughs> they uh, they were all really pissed, but they were also happy that I was happy 
they had to give me a good talking to. You're not going to quit again if we do this. And I went, no, no. I went. And so we all started right back up. And you know, things got really busy quickly. Yeah, it was a great time. It was something that I felt like I had to do. And, I, I mean, I'm still, uh, I'm still involved with that line of uh, spirituality. I mean, I still I pursue that. But I never found a real co- contradiction between you know, my political views and my Buddhist uh, views. And uh, right. so, you know, and I'm always going to do pretty much what I want to. So far better or worse. But when I'm gone, people will say he did it his way. <laughs> All right. So the band gets back together. October yeah, of 87, yeah. you record your debut record with John Cuniberti, if I'm saying that right. Uh, that's right. You yeah. did say it right. Quite well, the resume. Know, so, yeah, the, uh, he does, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. He really did. Yeah. I, I didn't feel like I... I <laughs> yeah, I mean, he had a, a big past. He had worked with a lot of great people. Sister of Happiness went in the studio, recorded... And pretty much mixed. There may have been a little post work done, but for the most part, that was like a 48-hour thing. Wow. I mean, we were in there and we were out. (laughs) And uh, so whatever wizardry he might have done prior, we got the fringe. (laughs) I mean, he he was an arriving... I don't even really I remember him all that well, mm-hmm. but he was a he was a nice guy, and I don't think he had ever worked on a project like that, like a punk rock thing like that. But he did it. So, and um, I remember it was very odd because I hadn't really been in touch with uh, SST for a while, you know. The and I just called up. And I think I chatted with uh, Greg and said, hey, I've got a new band and we want to record. And he said, well, send me a tape. So I sent him a tape. And literally in a few days, he called back and said, oh, yeah, well, you know, get it together where you want to do all this and let me know. And, and I was always astonished that, you know, that was it. We sent him one tape and he said, yeah. And we recorded the record and they put it out. Wow. Now, was, what, uh, what was this tape? Was it a demo? Was it just... Recording yeah, from it was a... just a little demo tape. I guess he played in the in the practice space. Okay. You know, we just got the best <laughs> the best little recorder we could get. It probably cost like five dollars. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, some um, like it wasn't produced. I mean, yeah, it was just like we set up a tape tape recorder hmm. on a cassette tape and sent it to him. And somehow, I mean, I guess he thought it was good enough. But, I mean, I can't imagine how good it was, but but you know what? Back in those days, I would never second guess any of that. Right. It was like, okay, we need this is what we have to do, and we can't go into a studio and record a demo tape, so we're just going to do it here, and we recorded it. I, there's a chance I might not have even listened to it. And went, this is what we recorded, and and we sent it to them. And it worked. It it, it, it was uh, 
I think it was it had something to say about the time, you know, like, uh, but just just the way that it worked. And I'd love to hear it today. I would probably <laughs> be shocked, <laughs> not not how good it sounded. Right. But uh, <laughs> that that would be the shocking thing. So uh, yeah, just it was a it was a pretty easy thing. And all I once we had this record and. We got a friend of mine who I uh, did. You ever hear the band Chris and Fix? Yes, Chris and Fix. Yeah. Well, uh, one of those guys in the band, I I was friendly with his mother, and I asked her. She had really long hair, and I said, "I've got this vision of a goddess coming out of the ocean." Would you mind posing for the picture? And she was astonished. And went, well, okay. And uh, we bought a big fish at about 7 o'clock one Saturday morning. We drove out to the ocean, and they just stand in the water and hold this big fish over her head so we could take the picture for the cover of, uh, of the first album. And uh, I think her son was looked out by it. Uh, Matt Baruso, I think his name. I mean, he was in shock to know that some local band had had his mother on the cover of an album. But, uh, and we liked it so much, we put it on the cover of our third album. So, you know, we uh, we worked her. And I don't think, you know, I think she was always a little bit shocked by it, too. Stephanie that, DeMaria. That's how that worked. Stephanie De Maria, yeah, Stephanie. She was. Uh, I'm still in touch with her every once in a while. Hmm. Uh, you know, lives take different ways, but if I made another record, I'd love to put her on the cover of uh, every other record I ever did forever. Just for the hell of it. I'm looking at it now. This is her on the cover of Uncut as well. Yes, exactly. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, we didn't want to go to the ocean. We just <laughs> and I didn't want to go buy a fish, right. so I just uh, found a picture of some poor woman who had passed away, I guess, and her picture ended up in the Goodwill. Oh, so that's who that is. I have no idea who it is. Of course, I think during some interviews I made up a lot of stories who the picture was, but <laughs> the truth of the matter is I have no idea who it was. Right. Do you mind if we talk about some of these tracks on the SST record? No, no, no. Go ahead. Okay, so the first song, Sister Double Happiness. Now, what came first, the song or the band name? Well, the band name, um, we were, I was going to originally call the band <laughs> Brown Beach, but uh, luckily that got over. <laughs> People didn't want that. Yeah, I think one of the last on one of the on a tour that the Dixon did, we played. I don't even really remember so well. We played in the in in what had been a bookstore, an old like bookstore that had closed down, and so they had moved all the books in a little room and cleared out the space. And uh, let bands play there. And this had 
only happened not long before we got there. And it turned out to be a communist book in Houston. And some guy told me, he said, look, they're going to throw all these books away. And so I went in and I looked around and on the floor was a book called Sister Double Happiness. And it was like, sort of like a big comic book, but big. And uh, it was from China. And it was uh, about a woman who was a fighter against the Japanese and the war between China and Japan. Uh And her name was, it was like Sister Mary Angela or something. Sister Double Happiness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I threw it in my bag and left and didn't think about it again. But then we were all reading it. And these, and in the book, in a very dramatic style, the people in the local village would approach her. And she was mean, mean. She'd shoot you in a second. And uh, she was like the heroine of the village and everybody loved Sister Double Happiness. And then I found out later on that Double Happiness was a very, very popular character. And they had Double Happiness cigarettes, and Double Happiness beer, and Double Happiness this and that. And um, so when it came time to choose between the name Brown Beach <laughs> and Sister Double Happiness, we took the ladder. <laughs> and then, so when we were coming up with us, we were just writing, and I decided to expand my story about Sister Double Happiness. And uh, I made a little story out of it. Okay. Uh, so sort of a, a love affair in the cultural re- revolution between people that were out to this... Uh, a success for Chairman Mao. Okay. And my bandmates didn't know what the hell I was talking about, and I don't think anybody else did either. So that was the name of the song. There's a co-write credit on here for Granny and Sebastian. Who's that? Sebastian was the bass player in the San Francisco Dicks. Yeah. And Granny was the second guitar player for the San Francisco Dicks. And we had written uh, Freight Train when that when the Dicks were just before we broke bro- broke up, and it wasn't even really finished. It was like it was just a piece of a song. And then, uh, but Lynn and I remembered it, and we really liked it a lot. So when Ben came along, we said, "Hey, there's this song that we did," and we sort of showed him. And uh, it would have been impossible to not include them on the writing but the song really got written after they were gone but you know it was the right thing to do yeah uh cleveland gets a writing credit on freight train as well Uh, i think his name was granville cleveland oh okay that's but he went by the nickname granny okay so the the song freight train total rocker you i think you say in your book it was one of your most popular songs which it was. People really loved it. I, I was so much singing it. it was, uh, there wasn't a lot of songs about uh, the AIDS thing that were going on. I mean, you know, people didn't 
people didn't write about it. It was, uh, but luckily nobody that I knew at that time was actually really sick. But in the community, the gay community that I I was part of, it was devastating. Yeah. And uh, so I heard their music, and I I was you know, Ben brought in some ideas for that music and I was just, then I just, you know, was being touched by it. The same thing with, uh, on, on the beach. It was like, those are results of what was happening around me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, people, people really like that song a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, are what's going on during the solo of this song? Do you remember? I, it almost sounds like you're doing some, are, are you like howling in the background or is that just a guitar effect? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I, it, it's possible I was howling. However, <laughs> I think what you're talking about is uh, it's a backward, it's a guitar yeah. lead played backward. Yeah, I thought I thought so, yeah. Yeah, yeah nothing too astonishing. Yeah, it's been bang. Now, some of these songs, like Let Me In, the next one, definitely a bit slower and moodier than stuff you'd been known for musically, anyways, up until this point. That's very true. That's one of those things that I felt like I wanted to do, and so I didn't second guess it. Every once in a while, I'll put together a group of friends here and play a lot of songs that I've done in the past. And the last time I put that together, it was a little over a year ago, I actually played that song. Oh. And it was the first time I had even thought about it in <laughs> like years. It's a, it, it is a pretty uh, moody song. Yep. Yeah, but you know, one day I felt like that, and I was able to capture that emotion. And uh, I actually thought it was pretty cool, to tell you the truth. I remember when we played it here not so long ago, I made them play it faster. I told, I mean, uh, slower. I told everybody, listen to that song, and when we go in, we're going to play it. So, uh, of course, they had rehearsed it the way that they had been listening to it, and it was uh, really fast. And I, I was going, no, it's much slower. And then I listened to it, and it was going, oh, well, no, <laughs> it isn't much slower. So uh, <laughs> we were still uh, having the hang- hangover of the punk rock thing, because I listen to a lot of those songs, and they're really fast. I would play them slower now. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was in the interim of, uh, you know, what was going on for me. But, yeah, would you let me in? That's a weird song. Cry Like a Baby, more blues rock. Were you always a, a fan of the blues? Was that something you were brought up on? I was brought up, yeah. My mother was a big blues fan, yeah. and uh, she had had this little... Uh, it, it was not a nightclub. It was a small town in Arkansas where I was. She had a little uh, ham- hamburger joint called the Daisy Queen. And uh, this is uh, it, uh, before the Beatles. So it was a time that uh, the uh, ju- jukebox was big. And the teenagers in the town would hang out there. And of course, I was a little kid bothering everybody. But uh, I loved uh, the uh, the blues. And my mother would get a lot of the, the records. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, that was the kind of music I always really liked. Uh, that and, of course, like just uh, regular rock and roll music. But uh, 
Yeah, so I was happy to have a blues song to sing like that. And that remained uh, a song that we did till the very last of Sister. I mean, we, we always did that song. Yeah. When did you know you could sing? I didn't really. I, But I wasn't afraid to do it. Well, with the punk rock thing, it was like, yeah, I, if I couldn't sing, I didn't give a damn. <laughs> but... Uh, you didn't like grow up singing in I church. Think that a lot of people. No. Nothing like that. Well, I, no. I, I mean, I went to a Baptist church in Arkansas, but they wouldn't have let me sing like that. Yeah. And uh, they were trying to be a nice church. <laughs> and uh, later, I quit going to a Baptist church and started going to a Catholic church, and they're not going to be singing like that. Right. There ain't no blues in the Catholic Church. And uh, then about that same time, the Vietnam War started, and I started being more influenced by the politics of the music and the war than I was by the Catholic Church. But uh, no, the church didn't have anything to do with it, although I did like some gospel stuff, and of course the blues had a lot of that in it. For sure. But I think I was more influenced on like a honky tonk mm-hmm. than the church. Yeah. Okay. But Cry Like a Baby, yeah, that was always that was always a fun song to sing. Uh, the next track, On the Beach, you mentioned uh, lyrically, it kind of references what was going on in your community at the time. Uh, this is the one that well, also... What was going on in everybody's fucking community. Yeah, for sure. It yeah. was... Uh, it was... Um, I actually wrote that before Sister even really started, and I literally was in Santa Cruz, and my friend, I was just down there visiting for a couple of weeks. He had to go to work every day, so he lived very near the uh, beach and the ocean, and I, so I spent every day just setting out and enjoying the the water, and uh it was a big deal back then. I mean, you know, you were hearing about people dying and seeing people walking around with all these problems. And so I just had my little book and I wrote down the words and luckily I was able to remember the music. And uh, a lot of time went by and Sister Don't Happen started and we were able to uh, put that to music. Yeah. And this is one thing that the uh, I wanted to do that John... Kuberte was able to pull together was getting a cello player, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, so I was happy that I mean he pulled the guy in and sort of I was working with him, going I really want it to sound like this, and he was going okay, and so he got the uh, cello player to play what I wanted. So I was that was very it was uh, it was very happy that I was able to do that because it was a lot of people uh, told me that that song touched them. They were very touched by that song. That's great. Uh, The next song, Poodle Dog. Now, who do you know this from? Is was this a Lightning Hopkins that introduced you to this song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only in the last few years have I found other versions of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I loved singing it, and I actually did that on a couple of different. I did it on a uh, tour album once. Uh, Jerry Floyd band, we did that song, and uh, yeah, and I tried to make it as filthy as, as I possibly could <laughs> without being too in your face. But 
uh, and people seem to, <laughs> to get it, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was always really happy that we did that. That's you at the beginning of the song, right? Talking about the your fuzzy poodle. Yes, yeah. it is me. I, I <laughs> jump up in Daddy's lap. Yeah, <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> I, that was one of the things. I, I don't know if they if the other band mates were that thrilled about my little in, intro. Right. But um, luckily, I didn't ask. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next song. It's Our Life. Love the great noisy guitar bits from Ben in this song. That's one of those songs that, you know how we played it for a while, and then we never played it again. Oh. By, uh, by the time we were uh, that we did the second record, we were never playing it. But I, li- I listened to it now. That was a pretty good song. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it was people liked it when we played it. But, you know, things get pushed back. And uh, so somehow that song got lost. But when I, I don't ever listen to the album, but when we were, when I was trying to think of songs to play on that last little venture I was talking about here in the city, I, I considered playing that. And uh, I still might sometime. But yeah, Ben was uh, in full form. And he did a, he did a great job on that. Uh, the next track, I Tried, is another kind of slow blues jam. So a blues thing. Yeah, and this is how it stands. Yeah. You know, like, uh, it's funny. You know? I mean, I would probably have done it a little different if I had it to do over again. But it was uh, it was one of those things I I felt good about it when it was in it. It, it was uh, the blues, and I think it was done with a bit of power and... Uh, the attitude was there, so I I didn't overthink it. Like I I would have done it differently now, but I think it stands mm-hmm. stands okay. It has its place on the album. Sweet talker uh, to me almost has a bit of a sixties vibe or something. Yeah, and it's really weird. When we recorded the album on Warner Brothers several years late, later, they really wanted us to do it again. Sweet and we talking. did it a little bit. Did, yeah, it's on the Warner Brothers Heart and Mind album. But I think the version that's on the SST record, it's uh, people really loved it, and we loved doing it. And uh, it became a song that was sort of like our song. That's another one that we played till the very end mm-hmm. of the band's history. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I really like it. It's... Uh, I think it's a pretty good example of leaving a stereotype punk rock and moving into like just sort of rock and roll. And I think it has a little bit of element of both of them. I feel my little spiritual pitch in there. Yeah, I mean, I was always very, uh, very proud of that song. Mm-hmm. Get Drunk and Do you Die. Like that? Oh, yeah, it's an awesome song for sure. I'm happy about that too. Get Drunk and Die is a song that I, I did. Uh, in the Gary Floyd band, when we were playing a lot of uh, tours in Europe, I would always play that. That was another blues thing that I always loved. I mean, I always really dug that song, and people always seemed to react when we play it live. I tried to keep that sort of as, you know, I, I always wanted to make those blues songs some something you'd see in a, 
a club in some little Texas back roads. It's funny you mentioned that. It's one of the questions I have here. Specifically, when I was listening to the song, I was thinking, like, did you ever play straight up like blues bars or like blues festivals or anything like that? Because you totally could have. Well, I think I could have. And no, I didn't. And I always, part of me always wanted to. I mean, maybe even get an old bad suit from the Salvation Army. Absolutely. (laughs) And and try to dress up a little bit, comb my hair, try to, you know, but not comb it too too good. No, and I wish that I had them. And, you know, uh, because... There was never anything that I would have done so different that I wouldn't have been able to pull it off. I mean, I would still want to sort of do it the same way that I was doing it then. But I think if you had changed the atmosphere, it would have still worked. Yeah. That That's something that I've always done. I, I remember we played in a club near here, Malpitas or something. I can't remember where I was, but it was a, it was a, it, like it was a blues place. And this is uh, later with the Gary Floyd band. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other guys did sort of dress up. I didn't. I mean, they just, they're not dressed up, but they just, they tried to dress in nice clothes, which I was always flabbergasted by. And uh, we did do quite a few blues. Like Johnny Winter had played at this place like a couple of weeks before. And uh, of course, passed away but uh like it was sort of a blues club but i didn't go there to try to put on some kind of blues but it was a crowd that didn't know me and they didn't they didn't really know us and i remember we were doing a lot of blues songs and i'm always sort of a little bit flirty with the audience and there was some uh straight out you know, like 45, 50-year-old women up front. And I guess I was sort of, without really knowing it, flirting with them. I was going, oh, yeah, y'all are dancing tonight and all that. And after this over with, one of them came over and said, oh, you know, it was like her, her, her husband came up. And it's like looking at me like I was being like flirting too much with his wife. (laughs) And I thought, you know, buddy, (laughs) if you've ever been able to feel safe, (laughs) you don't have to worry. (laughs) You don't have to worry. And, uh, but I was just thinking that was a bit of an accomplishment. I could get the, uh, the, uh, the older gals out there dancing and some of the guys and uh, that was the closest I've ever done that. But the kind of club I think you were talking about, I'd like to play at old Nasty Club. Yeah. Oh, Nasty out in the, the back woods of Texas. <laughs> and uh, a real roadhouse. Maybe road I'll host. steal a will someday. <laughs> huh? A real roadhouse. A real just yeah, whiskey out of a out of a jug. Yeah. But. I never got the chance, but I will someday, maybe. Yeah, still not too late. The last track on here, You Don't Know Me, is a total classic. 
that you also re-recorded for Heart and Mind. I did, and it's always weird. I almost look at them as different songs. They were, uh, you know, when you're on a major label sometimes, they want you to clean up a little bit. And I think that's something I felt like the songs are being cleaned up a little bit. I was pretty satisfied with them being not cleaned up. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they sound all right on both of those. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty nasty sounding, and uh, that's what we wanted. Mm-hmm. There's another version of that on a compilation album that was recorded in the in a rehearsal studio, but they also had a mixing board in there. And they recorded it, put it on an album, but still quite a bit different. Oh. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, so there's a few versions of that song out about. Mm-hmm. But I think the one on the uh, SSC are going to just maybe my favorite. It's a good one. Yeah, I was happy. It was one. Well, it was once again. It was redefining. I don't know. I had like become associated with and the Dicks. I think the Sister Normal Happen album sort of took it and ran with it in another direction. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll put my name on it. Did you tour this record? Uh, well, in a way, we did a lot of uh, up and down the West Coast, and we played in uh, Texas a couple of times. I think that's about it. We went to Texas and played a couple of times, and we play the up and down the west coast including vancouver i think okay you had mentioned earlier way back to the start of the band you had talked about adding a second guitar player and you you did by 93 you added danny roman who you'd continue to collaborate with in your solo band and the amazing black kelly ma band uh you recently oh, lost yeah, yeah you know danny came into the band at a great time because uh like I said, we had always said that we wanted like a second guitar for bigger sound. And uh, Ben had met Danny out and about and said, ah, I got this friend, why don't we try now? And immediately he had the right sound. And um, I, I I wanted him to join like immediately and everybody felt good about it. Danny was a great guy. And uh, I started working, before Sister broke up, I started working on the uh, first solo record I did, The World of Trouble was the name of it. And I was really happy when I asked Danny if he would like be part of that project. And he was, uh, yes, yes. And so he was with me. I ended up recording five of those albums, uh, solo records. And uh, then the Black Kalima and... Uh, he was with all the projects I did after that. Even the I did two albums with a band called the Buddha Brothers, and he was on the first one. By the second one, he was like dealing with other things. But he and I remained wonderful friends and writing comrades. We were like very close, and he uh, just died uh, last week. Yeah. So that's a big old sad sad blow to uh my musical world yeah uh, but i've seen a lot of people die mikey donaldson the first bass player for sister also passed away so you know 
that's the way life is. It's sad. Yeah. And it was very sad to hear that Danny had gone. Because like I say, I can listen to so many songs throughout my whole uh, music career that Danny and I wrote together. And, yeah. Yeah, so it was sad to lose him. Very sad. Well, I'm very sorry for your loss. I was checking out his earlier band, The Breakouts. They were really, really great. They were a great band. We, they actually played with the Dicks once. And Danny swears I paid him a bunch of compliments. And I always told him, I don't remember saying anything to you. <laughs> <laughs> I think as time went on, he would tell me, more and more compliments I had paid him. <laughs> and I was going, you, you know, <laughs> I don't even think I spoke with you. And he went, no, you said how great I was. I went, oh, come on. But, uh, yeah, he was a great guitar player. I mean, he could play great leads, but he was the best rhythm-holding guitar player that I ever played with. Hmm. I mean, the guy was... Uh, he showed you what the whole rhythm guitar thing was about. I mean, he was great. Yeah. Yeah, he'll be really, he'll be missed. When Sister played live shows, did you ever close the show with like a Dick song? Yes, as a matter of fact, usually uh, Dick's Hate the Police, I think. That's about all. I mean, we did that in Europe a couple of times. I don't even think I knew what the hell we were doing. And, uh, I think it's even on a live in Zurich. It was a concert uh, film that these people did, and they asked us at one show in Germany, if we show up in Zurich, can we film? And we went, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And uh, it, it ended up, we showed up, and they had a, a big mixing truck outside <laughs> and three or four cameras and it was like, Oh my God, I, I, I thought it was going to be some kid with a, right. like a little, little bitty video <laughs> camera. But, uh, yeah. And they actually, they, it was, it's in the li- library here and people are saying, so, I mean, it's something you can get, but I don't know if it ever got transferred to DVD or, or, or not. Mm. But, uh, I think we end the show with Dick State Police on that. And every once in a while, if it was really fun, we'd do that. But not not too much right. we did that, but every once in a while. All right. Now, you mentioned pre-COVID you were, you were playing some shows locally. Any big plans for, will we hear some new recordings well, perhaps? Well, I'm doing some, uh, well, it's a yes and no. I'm doing some home studio recording uh, coming up, but they're for just different pro- projects that I'm doing. And uh, until the whole thing, the pandemic is around, all the clubs are closed. So that's where I usually would do something. And yeah. I'm not really uh, too interested in doing any Zoom shows or any of that. I, you know, but I will do something at some time, but I have no. I mean, I'm recording stuff, but as far as live shows, I don't have anything planned right now. Okay. I look forward to this whole uh, hideous virus thing being contained a bit. And we can all, I mean, everybody misses going out and seeing live stuff. Yeah, right? for sure, yeah. Yeah, mostly I paint now. I mean, I paint. I still do live stuff, but uh, obviously with the pandemic, I'm not 
So I'm paying a lot. And, and you know, that's what old, old people do. <laughs> you play and play and then you paint. <laughs> Is there anywhere, any, any place we can see these paintings? Do you put them up online? I've got some of them online. I don't have really an online thing. I've had a lot of uh, gallery shows, not huge gallery, but there's a wonderful gallery in Austin that I usually show at. Once every about every year and a half, I'll have a month long show and I've had shows around here, but you know, I still plan to do some kind of online little art thing, but then it becomes really uh, serious and I feel obligated to do it. And then all at once, I don't enjoy it as much. Right. Gary, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, I thank you for the interest level uh, and, you know, I love your site on Facebook, I know, and I'm glad, you, I'm glad that you do that. Thank so you. I wish you luck, too, and happiness. Thank you very much. Okay, take care, okay? Thanks. You too, Gary. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, great interview. Thanks so much for being on the show, Gary. And uh, love, Brent, the DOA tie-in, because... <laughs> love that i knew you i knew you were gonna go there no surprise there whatsoever but the reason i really like the tie-in to doa and joe on this episode is because the things that always come top to mind when i think of joe and of gary is artistic integrity right for sure yep good point and uh so they they definitely at least in my mind have you know a, almost like a, a kinship that way i guess Mm-hmm. But totally makes sense to read in Gary's book about how they struck up a relationship and uh, shared a stage, shared a tour or tours probably and uh, supported each other when they were hitting the road. Well, like like many people, Gary in his book recognizes that DOA was a big part of inventing DIY touring. So, yeah, for sure. Should we talk about these tracks? Yeah, man. History Lesson, Part 2. Before we get into these tracks, Brent, I'm going to hit you with a Spaceman spiel for this record, okay? Yeah. Let me flip to the correct page in my trusty SST catalog. Here's what Michael Whitaker had to say. Heaviness incarnate, the locomotive weight of the blues running smack dab into a mile-high wall of the heaviest metal. That is where Sister Double Happiness starts. After that, they pulverized the world with their super truncheon of power. 11 new songs sung by Gary Floyd. LP, cassette, and CD. And uh, Spaceman's not wrong. It, you definitely uh, start off with a bang with the track Sister Double Happiness. Yeah, so this one, at least on the CD version, and I mentioned this in the interview, Granny and Sebastian get a credit. Maybe... He mentions Freight Train that these guys were involved with, so maybe there's just some confusion there. I'm not sure what, what the actual truth is. Sebastian, of course, you mentioned was in the in the Dicks, and Granny is uh, Granville Cleveland, a.k.a. Granny, who I don't think played on any Dicks recordings, but was in uh, the final incarnation of the band. Yeah, on the LP... When I look at the label, it says all songs by Sister Double Happiness except Freight Train by Sister Double Happiness and Granny and Sebastian. Okay. So the CD might have it wrong. 
Yeah. The album starts with that amazing voice, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It just goes into a rocker, slows down to this trudging riff with a train wreck ending. It is a great way to start off the record. Yeah, no real structure to that song, but it works. This is the kind of song that would typically, I think, close out a record almost maybe, but it's a good way to open it too. For sure. Yeah, and then it goes into, you know, maybe one of their most famous tracks of the time, Freight Train, which has that great opening riff. Um, And I love the bass playing on it too. I love I knew you would. Yeah, Mikey's bass playing on this record is just killer man he's a busy bass player but it works yeah Yeah. total stooges rocker lynn's drumming is perfect on this the rolling toms during the verses yeah and then going to the snare in the choruses uh love the backwards solo the lyrics i call my mom and she says don't come home my friends shun me i'm all alone before they touch me they put on gloves come on people i need some love ouch Yeah, Gary actually has a spiel about this song in his book. He says, uh, Freight Train was a really popular live song, but I didn't know it would become one of our most well-known tunes. I didn't have any expectation like that. I thought maybe you don't know me, but we would later re-record that. I was so fresh out of the dicks when Sister Double Happiness started happening. I was trying not to make the record too slick. I look at it now, and it's certainly not. But I also wanted to breathe free and move away from the hardcore punk thing because I wanted my music to be more about life rather than what was dictated by a title or a genre. Yeah. Then it goes into Let Me In, which has an amazing minor key riff going on. The riff kind of reminds me of Rush's Spirit of the Radio every time I hear it. <laughs> Simil- similar riff, actually. Yeah. Gary's vocals are are awesome on this one, on all of them, of course. Uh, he kind of reminds me of Rocky Erickson at times. Oh, yeah. That's why he, he works so well on that tribute, for sure. Yeah, Two-Headed Dog. And they do a cool take on Two-Headed Dog, too. It's kind of a mid-tempo version, I guess. Yeah. But it's great. Um, and then we go into Cry Like a Baby, which is uh, more working man blues. This is proletariat rock, man. Yeah, that's what I was saying. This could be my theme song. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, he mentions a honky-tonk influence in the interview, so... Yeah. And then uh, it closes out with On the Beach, and this is that track that has the cello on it. He also describes Mm -hmm. the recording of this track in his book, and uh, he says that they had ideas of what they wanted. The cello player came in, he did a couple of takes, but it just didn't work. So John, the engineer, said, can you all just get out of here? Everybody go eat. I'll stay with the guy. And when they came back, like two hours later, it was all recorded. And uh, they were like, what did you do? And he went, magic. Uh, the guy the guy packed up with the cello, said thanks a lot, and they were gone. At some point, he says, even if we were unhappy, though, we realized we simply didn't have the luxury of time to record the songs over again. And Gary thinks it sounds great, and I do too. Yeah. The cellist, Michael Knapp, uh, he taught cello at the Community Music Center in San Francisco, and he also passed away in 2012. Yeah. Great song. Good to hear, you know, that this is one that people mention to Gary as a song that's moving to them. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, uh, if you're listening to it on LP, you flip it over and you start with Poodle Dog, which is a real blues rock number. Yeah. Uh, dates back to 1942 by Chicago bluesman Tampa Red. It's been recorded 
uh, probably dozens, if not hundreds of times, but was made famous by Lightning Hopkins. Uh, this is the one that starts with Gary doing his, like, it kind of, it kind of makes me think of the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, every time I listen to it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> oh, it's my fuzzy little poodle dog. Oh, yeah. Just the way he's talking. I guess, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good reference. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a good, it's a good track. It's definitely Sister Double Happiness saying, you know, we're not doing hardcore punk here, right? Yeah. Then it goes into It's Your Life, and I love this track. I love the fuzzed out bass. It has a great eerie guitar, noisy feedback sound as well. Also a great anti-war track. And, you know, all of Gary's lyrics are political, which is, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I said, you know. Obviously, I mentioned it in the interview, the Ben's guitar playing is just cooking on this one. And you combine that with Gary's, you know, anti-war, anti-corrupt government lyrics, and this one's a standout for sure. For sure. Then it goes into I Tried, which begins with some picked chords in a minor key. Almost has a House of the Rising Sun kind of reminiscent vibe to it, the animals a bit. Um, but then it goes into SDH's own thing. It's a cool track. Yeah, this is one of the ones that reminds me of, like, you know, the British bands that were all influenced by the blues yeah. in the 70s. The animals. You know, 60s and 70s. Like, this sounds like something Zeppelin would do. Perhaps. Yeah. Then it goes into Sweet Talker, which is a interesting, funky track with some slide guitar. It... Um, it almost has like a down on the corner vibe to it. Yep, for sure. I think it was a minor hit for them, maybe. They sweetened it up a bit for the next record, Heart and Mind, when they re-recorded it. Uh, there's some great footage on YouTube of them performing this with the two-guitar lineup uh, at the BAMI Awards in San Francisco right. in 1992. Uh, that live in Zurich footage that Gary talks about that's good, in the hey? interview, that's on YouTube. Yep. It's from 93, uh, multi-camera shoot. They play Freight Train and You Don't Know Me back-to-back, back, and it's pretty great. They close the show with Dicks Hate Police and Two-Headed Dog. That's worth a, worth a, worth a watch. Yeah. This track, Sweet Talker, is the one with the angelic choir on it as well, doing the background vocals. Those are yeah. Tammy, Ben, Mikey, Lynn, Gary, and Helen. Yeah, Helen, I think he says in the interview, that's the she was the vocalist in the Rex. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, then we get into Get Drunk and Die. Whoa. This is a, a blues track for sure with some uh, super heavy lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, that one's all right. But then, Ryan, you don't know me. This is the closer and this is like a big hit for them for sure, hey? Yeah. The first thing I notice is the guitar is horribly out of tune. But yeah. it works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something. <laughs> it works. Well, that's the thing, like... Sweet Talker, it almost sounds like it speeds up or slows down after the first couple of bars. Like it changes pitch on, at least on my vinyl copy. And then You Don't Know Me, I'm kind of like, something is dissonant throughout. And it's the guitar for sure with the vocals. Because when you listen to it in a, uh, like when you watch the live footage and the, both the guitar and the vocals are in tune with each other, it's killer. Yeah. While well, they re-recorded this for Heart and Mind too. Right. And 
sweetened it up. I prefer this ragged version for sure. Uh, you mentioned the live footage. Lynn does the backup vocals for a lot of these songs with like a boom mic while she's just nailing the drumming, yeah. which is pretty awesome to watch. This one I like. There's a great Thunders-esque solo from Ben in this one. And Ryan, you mentioned some of the comps that they're on. Gary mentions in the interview that there's a third version of this song on a compilation, which I could not find. Do you know Do you know what it I is? I don't know. What's the name? Well, I don't know. I can't find it. Mm. I'd love to hear that version. So if anybody listening to this knows the, the name of that compilation, let us know, please. Yeah. Engineered really quickly by John Cuniberti, who you mentioned he worked a lot with Joe Satriani, who was also from San Francisco. But he did a lot of Bay Area thrash bands. He worked, he did do some punk stuff. Like he, he did the early Dead Kennedys singles like Bleed For Me and Halloween. He did the Flipper Love Canal single. Ah. A lot of that alternative tentacle stuff from that era, like Victim's Family, Tragic Mulatto, a Kloss Fluoride record. And he also did These People by The Dicks. Yeah. Yeah. Gary mentions that in his book too though about how like even though it's the same engineer i think klaus was producing these people and it sounds better as a result they had more time right yep yeah i like the sound of this record though he he talks a lot in his book about how uh when they signed to warner's their a and r guy just hated the sound on this record yeah i like it no it's good i mean typical sst though right you know i mean you know get her done in a weekend don't screw around yep yep (laughs) make sure you sometimes do a lot of practicing before you hit the studio well it's like we were talking about last week with production values of like capturing a vibe sometimes you can spend too much time in a studio that's true and it becomes antiseptic great story about the cover art that gary tells how he just kind of saw it in his mind or had a vision almost yeah it's hard to figure out how it ties with the band or any of the lyrics i struggled to try and figure out how it fit together but it is uh it's definitely unusual yeah they he talks about uh the berkeley band crucifix i think matt baruso this is his mom on the cover he was in that band wild hey stephanie di maria yeah she's got a good grip on that catfish or yep. carp, whatever it is. Some great pics of the band on the back. Oh, yeah. Danny Roman was a lefty. I always like, you know, how it looks on stage when you've got two guitar players and one's a lefty. Oh, yeah. It, that, uh, the mirror image, right? Yeah, yeah it, it always looks cool. Ben played strats, I think. It looks like a strat to me, for sure. Yeah. Gary's got uh, a tambourine, some wicked shades, a cap, and Lynn is just she's got this grimace like she's laying it down live yeah looks great she's a great drummer man totally yeah i've got the the inner inner sleeve as well has got another picture of uh from the sea photo shoot there without the fish sans fish this picture also fits fits with the the cover art and um it says uh, on the back Special thanks to Tammy Lundy and Helen Katie, who I think is the same Helen and Tammy from the Angelic Choir. Mm-hmm. Um, the fish, it's called Sandy B. 
<laughs> I don't I don't know why. I thought that was maybe who sourced the fish for them or maybe. something. Maybe. I thought it was maybe Sandy Beach, but who knows. Um, maybe. The thank yous are interesting, too. I mentioned Roddy Bottom gets a thank there, who uh, was probably in Faith No More at the time and would go on to uh, play with Linda and Imperial Teen. But also a thank you to Joe Pye and Randy Turner. I tried checking out Popo Pies. I've tried before because the Melvins name drop them frequently, and I think I've covered them. Not in? Not in. I've got a couple of their records. They come out every now and then, but it's not frequent. Yeah. How about Dead Wax, Ryan? Not on this one. Hmm. I don't think it was ever repressed or anything. I think I've got an OG copy, and there's no Dead Wax. Hmm. We might be uh, ending our Dead Wax with SST. I don't know. I hope not. Probably not for the re- releases though new alliance stuff that'll come up they'll probably use the same stampers and get some dead wax there yeah ballot result let's do it ballot result lots of great choices on this record hey like yeah you know some of them are just stone cold classics and i was just rocking out to them all week um yeah but if i had to pick one actually it would actually be the song Sister Double Happiness because of the way the vocals start. I'm like, because just oh. think, right? This is side A of our tape following Vitus. And just think if it were to go right into Gary's voice and the song Sister Double Happiness, I think that'd be pretty good. Yeah, it'd be all right. That's not one I picked. I picked Freight Train, It's Our Life, or You Don't Know Me. It's too bad we're not going to see the, see the band anymore. Yeah. That's a drag. No doubt. Ah, oh, it just means, you know, this week I was rocking out to the Dicks and the Big Boys and this record. I'm just going to wrap up the week by listening to the remaining SDH albums. Yeah. This album's on Spotify, by the way, for people that don't have it and want to hear it. What's the pick, Ryan? Oh, you pick, man. Well, maybe we should do Freight Train since it's considered one of their classics. Oh, yeah. And the opening riff is killer, too. Yeah. I'm in. Let's do it. All right. Let's do Freight Train. Hey, thanks to Gary for being on the show, man. Super awesome to have him on. Yeah, no doubt. Much appreciated. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant. It's the proud, the few, Descendants with SST 163, the Liveage record. Can't wait. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.